I was reminded by Allison, Allison, right? That I did not introduce myself to people who are here for the first time, and my name is Donald Rothberg. <laughs> Thank you. And um, I want to continue today with a theme from last time, which I introduced last time as possibly the most important topic that we could conceivably explore. And the, that topic is how we make this practice real in our daily lives. And I think it could be looked at as most important. And of course, we could talk about certain principles as being very, really, really crucial. But how we manifest in our daily lives, in, for, for many of us, is one way to look at how we can best practice and how we can best connect the, this uh, development, cultivation of mindfulness, loving-kindness, wisdom, compassion, and so forth. How do we keep cultivating that in the ebb and flow of our daily lives? And how do we, how do we manifest it more fully? And so it really is uh, a great challenge uh, personally uh, for, for us, because many of us have deep aspirations, and yet we are clearly <laughs> trying to make it work in the midst of having families, uh, regular work, being committed to the community or society, uh, and so forth. And it's really a different model, certainly than has existed in Buddhist tradition. But generally speaking, in the past, most people who felt a really deep spiritual urge, not, not exclusively, but um, certainly in the world religions, usually went outside of society to cultivate that, became monks or nuns or hermits or lived more alone or lived in the mountains and so forth. And of course, there are many traditions where there is the aspiration to develop in the midst of everyday life. I think in indigenous traditions, that's more the norm. And I'll actually bring in some material from indigenous traditions later. And one can find that also in a number of traditions. I'm conscious that that's uh, the prevailing model in Jewish tradition, that one, that, you know, although there are uh, contemplatives who live more uh, apart, there hasn't been a monastic tradition within Judaism, interestingly. You know, and one can find it also in uh, many of the uh, Taoist and Confucian models. The, in, Ch in Chinese tradition, very much the notion that the real place is in, is in the flow of daily life. You can also find that intention in um, Hindu tradition with the notion of uh, uh, karma yoga. Some of you know the notion that one develops spiritually right in the midst of action, which is uh, karma is, was the everyday word for action in, in, uh, in India. And, and one finds it also in, in a number of uh, aspects of Buddhist tradition, uh, more in the Mahayana where the emphasis is on the importance of what's called lay practice. So historically, one can find this, but certainly uh, among a lot of the Buddhist tradition, the main action seemed to be for those who leave society and leave ordinary life. And for virtually all of us, that's not our intention, even if we may go on retreat in which we live that life of pure training for periods of time, we come back. And so how to do that is this great question of our times. And uh, last time, I focused on several areas and uh, really 
pointed to three main areas, and today I want to work with three further areas. And the three areas that I looked at last time were first uh, a grouping of basic supports for daily life practice. The, the second was to see the importance, particularly in our culture, of grounding in the body. And the third was a way of working with daily life experience in which we take challenges or difficulties or even suffering as, an, as a doorway to learning. But that goes against the grain. Usually we take difficulties or challenges or sufferings as a reason to curse or a reason to say, let's get over this as soon as possible and I don't want to learn anything from it. In fact, I want it to be over as soon as possible. Has anyone ever experienced that? <laughs> so, and so those are, those are three. So <clears throat> first, just briefly to go over those, there are these many, many ways to develop in daily life. And a lot of them are very familiar, uh, the importance of a daily practice, doing periodic retreats, uh, study, being part of supportive communities. And in fact, we, I think we could see these tools, these many, many tools for supporting practice in daily life, such as what we were talking about, having artwork around the house, uh, having your cell phone give you reminders every four hours uh, when you're not sleeping, <laughs> you know, having, having computer reminders, having uh, jewelry that you wear that reminds you, having friends uh, that, that uh, send you reminders, people that one calls a buddy. I've known many people uh, I've heard who uh, text each other when they've done their practice for the day. You know, and have networks of people doing that. And uh, they find that very supportive. Right? And so there are all these ways, and we could think of some of them as more personal, sort of individual volition, finding supports, and some of them are more having support from others, finding a support network. So there are all sorts of, there are all sorts of tools. Um, I once, uh, for, when I did the book called The Engaged Spiritual Life several years ago, I compiled a list called 60 Ways of Supporting Mindfulness in, in Daily Life. And um, I, I had mixed feelings about it. My, my editor uh, cut it. <laughs> so it never appeared in the book. <laughs> and so I was thinking, well, maybe I should have it appear in some other form. It could be the basis for a nice little short little 50 or 60 page book, right? Expand on each of them. Maybe I should do that. But I had, uh, so I brought in that list. I thought I would just read it in the beginning of it because I, I was thinking as we were talking this morning also, we could very creatively together, I have 60, we get all the resources. I don't have anything about texting on this. You know, it was written five years ago. <laughs> so if we collectively brought together all our suggestions, and uh, I think we would probably have 100 or more, and I think that would be very, very fruitful. So maybe we can continue that. Um, so I, I thought I'd just read uh, just a few of these to give you the flavor, you know, because, and this came from my own experience and also compiling what uh, people had shared with me. So I'll, maybe I'll read the first ten just to give that sense of the flow. Maintain a daily mindfulness practice. For many it's helpful to do sitting or walking meditation at more or less the same time of day if possible. Two, 
on very busy days, sit or walk quietly for just a short time, even for five or ten minutes. Three, every morning be mindfully present to the natural world for some time. You might take a walk every morning or sit or stand or, wa- or, or walk uh, during the sunrise. Four, choose a thread of awareness which you, ca- which you can continually find after being distracted, like the breath or sensations of some part of the body, for example, hands, feet, bottom in contact with a chair, or in the heart center. During the day, no matter what you are doing, you will have a constant thread uh, uh, on which to rely. Five, take short breaks for five or ten minutes of mindfulness practice during the day, perhaps with someone else. If you've been sitting for a while, take a short walk, practicing walking meditation. Sometimes take even shorter breaks of a minute or two, such as as you were doing. Uh, Sit five or ten minutes before meals, perhaps with someone else. Have a period of quiet mindfulness just before eating, perhaps ending with a reflection, prayer, or blessing. Number eight, take a short mindfulness walk after a meal in silence, perhaps with someone else. Nine, periodically eat a meal in silence, alone or with others. Ten, be mindful just before going to sleep and if possible upon awakening, awakening, particularly attending to mindfulness of body sensations, including the breath. So that's an example. Uh, and the, the, that, that was the first ten. So we could, we could have that list. We could have what works personally for us. And I thought I'd bring in uh, also some examples from another tradition, giving a different flavor. This is from uh, indigenous tradition, from the peoples of the Northwest. And I've been privileged to enter into what's called First Nations cultures in, in British Columbia a number of times. And probably about 10 or 12 years ago, I went to uh, an exhibit at one of the museums, which really brought that culture, it was pretty much the culture of Vancouver Island, very fully out. And um, it was a beautiful exhibit, it was a, called Out of the Mist. And one of the things which was most intriguing to me was that they had in those cultures a series, a, a whole body of practices for increasing spiritual awareness in daily life. And they would do that at, with numerous, numerous activities. Some of them would take a short time, some of them could take hours, some of them could, be, could take months, you know, and, or involve parts of days. And these were called, if I'm, I may not be pronouncing it right, but it's called uh, usimsh in, in the uh, language of, of those peoples. I thought I'd read a little bit here. Everything and everyone are connected. All things in the physical world originate in the spiritual world. Success depends on effective communication between these realms. When our people sought spiritual peace, uh, spiritual power, called usimsh in our language, they uh, visited a sacred place where they, where they use special medicine. Some of the prayer pools are just behind the mountain. Some of, them, uh, some of them are just above the mountain. And they talk about the activities which they do, these different usimsh. So they have one for hunting, and they do a particular ritual for hunting. They have another one for, uh, for peeling bark from trees. They would, they would have a certain ritual and way of bringing awareness that they would do before peeling bark. They would have another one for canoe making. And there were a whole series of this. One of the most 
powerful ones was the one for whaling, which was very central in that culture. And uh, one might go through a sequence of uh, in involving rituals that one does for five years before becoming really equipped to enter into the um, whaling. And so I just brought that out. It's something, again, different kind of cultural model, but a sense that all the activities of the day could be imbued with, we, we might say, a connection with one's deeper values. You know, and how to do that. And for us, you know, they might uh, go to a prayer pool, we might use a cell phone. You know, and I don't think one's necessarily better than the other. But we can find what works for us in this culture to bring, to bring us back to the present. So that was, that was the first theme that was explored. A second emphasis explored was the importance for our culture on body awareness, perhaps because of so much of the electronic media and the fact that the culture is often where many of us have work, where we're on our computers a lot, we're talking a lot, there are a lot of meetings, there's a lot of thinking, and a lot of that leads us to be, as it were, on, in the thinking realm nonstop. And, and so that has its own momentum. And of course, we find that often when we sit. And what I have found especially powerful uh, and important for, for, for myself and for many people is essentially developing body awareness enough so that thinking doesn't dominate all the time and that we have, in a way, uh, a, me a mechanism so that the, we can um, open up to a larger awareness in which thinking appears but doesn't dominate. That's one way to say it. And body awareness is quite crucial. Another way to say it is that body awareness is quite crucial for breaking the automatic and habitual nature of the thinking mind. Not easy. Right? And in my experience, it takes a fair amount of training. And we start with the breath. You know, as I think I mentioned last time, probably for many of us, starting meditation, we become much more aware of the senses. You know, and I, I had that experience when I first started meditation. I was a student. I was supposed to be thinking a lot. <laughs> you know, thinking and writing and so forth. That was the nature. That's the nature of the dominant kind of education in this culture, right? It's, you know, we don't... We, you know, some of that's tra uh, changing. We, we generally don't have a lot of emphasis in schools on developing emotional sensitivity, right? We might, you know, we might, uh, you know, and we don't have a lot of training to really develop sensory awareness in the body, right? That's not part of the, what you're tested for in the college boards, right? It might be that with a healthier culture. And so we really need to uh, from, well, I, was, I was going back, for me, coming to meditation was a way of, of coming back to awareness of the senses, which of course we had as children. We lived in that world much more. And something, again, we learned things and yet we didn't really integrate, for the most part, that very profound development of thinking with the body and the emotions. I think that, so there's somewhat of a fragmentation that many of us have experienced. And the meditation path is ultimately integrative and leading to more of a wholeness and a connection. And so 
uh, awareness of the body is quite central. We could, I could also, of course, emphasize that connection with the heart and so forth. But I think the, the being with the body is particularly crucial in this culture. And we can do that in all sorts of ways. We can, I think, just the fact of being in meditation, where we're primarily with the breath, a lot with the body, helps. Doing walking meditation, those of you who do yoga or some kind of body practice, can, that can really help. A lot is just to bring in that body awareness all different times during the day. You know, and small ways help, just to be aware of the hand on the knee at a meeting will further body awareness. In my experience, I also had to give a fair amount of attention during retreats to cultivating awareness of the body. And again, some of us already maybe do that. We're all conditioned in somewhat different ways. But that is, I think, very, very central in my experience because when we are aware of the body, it can be a kind of default awareness that we bring with us. It helps us to be aware in the moment and not so caught up in the thinking. Just can, again, it, it, it uh, go, cuts through that automatic quality of our consciousness, which is often, often there. Uh, the third aspect that I talked about last time uh, is, again, a special one of taking challenges or difficulties or suffering as a starting point for practice. When we do that, our practice can grow quite quickly because we're going against the conditioned tendency to want to get rid of problems, of challenges, maybe to blame ourselves or blame others for even being a problem. And instead, we do, I think uh, what I quoted before from the Tibetan tradition, transform all obstacles into the path of practice. Very profound uh, teaching. That, uh, and again, it, it depends, really to take that seriously, we need uh, some foundation of awareness and confidence and clarity about why that's important. You know, some clarity about the fact that our typical conditioning is to run away from problems, difficulties, what's unpleasant, and to grab hold of what's pleasant. And so we need to study that a lot. At a certain point when we're clear that even though that's very common condition, conditioning, it may not be so wise. It may not be so wise to, to do that. And, we, and I think you know this teaching, which I give uh, a lot, which is one of my favorite teachings from the Buddha, that teaching of the two arrows, which is an expression of this. That teaching the two arrows says everyone has unpleasant experiences. What distinguishes a practitioner from a non-practitioner? The non-practitioner, when there are unpleasant experiences, we can call that the first arrow. We can call that pain, you know, the un- presence of the unpleasant. Unpleasant body sensations, unpleasant experiences with another person, unpleasant thoughts, un- difficult or unpleasant emotions. The tendency when we're following our conditioning, when that happens, is to because of that first arrow being shot and receiving that first arrow, we shoot a second arrow at ourselves or others as if that would get rid of the first arrow. And so what do we do when we have unpleasant sensations? We tense in the body. That's the second arrow. In actuality, that actually creates more pain. You know? Or what do we do when we have a difficult emotion? Maybe we blame another, we blame ourselves for the next three days. It creates more pain. That's called the second arrow. 
And we could call that suffering or reaction to the first. And so when we see that teaching, we can see that it's actually unskillful just to follow that conditioning and shoot the second arrow. It's to, that would be to tense around the physical pain. doesn't mean not to do things which maybe respond wisely to a situation. Um, but a lot of the reactions actually are shooting the second arrow. Or when someone says something mean to us and I uh, send back, I shoot back that second arrow in the form of a negative comment. That's shooting the second arrow. And it's very common in most of the conflicts in our world are second arrow affairs, interpersonal or in the world. They're people who don't know how to work skillfully with the difficulty or the pain that's there. And so they think that they can solve the problem by inflicting pain or violence on another. And again, as I like to say, I believe that people like Dr. King and uh, Gandhi or the Dalai Lama manifest this teaching of the two arrows on a larger social level. Because nonviolence is to say, whatever has happened negatively in the past, we will not continue the cycles of violence, but we will meet pain with love and wisdom. Not easy. But this is, this is really the wisdom that leads us to say, maybe it would be wise for me to look into how I deal with difficulties. And to take them when we're at a certain place of maturity, to take them as challenges to uh, to work with skillfully and say, oh, a difficulty, another chance to learn, <laughs> another chance to grow in wisdom. Thank you. Or again, I, I think I mentioned last time the Dalai Lama says, thank you, China, my friend, my enemy. <laughs> you know, you know uh, and he said, we've learned so much. And, and I think many times we can say, gosh, I learned so much from that challenge and I'm glad it's over and I wouldn't want it to happen again. <laughs> but um, there is learning I think we can, we can think, I was, I was thinking of a friend who I was talking with whose son has had all sorts of difficulties. You know, he was uh, um, sexually abused by one of her so-called friends when he was 11 years old. You know, he got in trouble with the law when he was 18. He has profound learning disabilities. He's had automobile wrecks, you know, and has struggled with alcoholism and so forth, struggled with keeping jobs, really difficult life. That's her son. She says, it's been incredibly hard and I can't believe what I've learned by staying with it. Right? And that's, a, as it were, a high very high degree of difficulty, but probably each of us knows something like that in ourselves. And so again, that, to take that as a horizon is a way that daily life practice comes richly alive. So some further some further uh, ways to focus. Uh, one of them is to focus on intention. This is a, can be a very powerful way to bring practice into daily life. And at the beginning of the meditation, we worked with two ways to develop clarity of intention. Working with intention helps us to remember. We, we mentioned during the discussion right before the talk that the, one of the hardest things about daily life practice is remembering to remember. Uh, that when we remember, we're mostly pretty good. But how do we remember? <laughs> That's hard. <laughs> and so working with intention is a way to manifest that or as a way to support remembering. And again, it could be to work with intention in the morning at a, during a meditation 
to come back to one's deeper intention or aspiration. It could be to then have an intention for my meditation. It could be to go to a meeting and, and bring an intention to one's mind. What's my intention for this next hour meeting? It could be as simple as I want to listen openly or I'm going to try to be a little bit mindful during this meeting. And to work with specific intentions like that during the day can, can go a long way. You know, you can have aids that help us to remember the intentions, like as, as we mentioned, jewelry, write things in your hands, cell phone, computer, artwork on the wall, and so forth. These are all uh, tools for remembering. We can periodically reflect on what we really want. When I work with people one-on-one, an issue that comes up frequently is people asking about, do I have my priorities straight in my life? One of the reasons they want to talk is that they don't think they do. And so reflection on, am I living the way I want to, periodically is very crucial. And we could say that's really connecting with intention. In the Tibetan tradition, there were practices that one does, where, and also in the Theravada tradition, there are practices that one does which help us, help one systematically to reflect on what's important. In the Tibetan tradition, these are called the four thoughts which turn the mind to practice. And they are first reflecting on the preciousness of a human life. The fact that human life uh, shouldn't be taken for granted. That it's fairly rare in their cosmology, you know, where there are thousands and thousands of beings continually recycling. (laughs) To be a human being with the potential for awakening is not so common. There's also a reflection on death and impermanence not knowing the time of our death can sometimes be a goad to practice, can, can, can inspire us. The third is, is reflections on karma, on knowing that our actions have consequences, that every moment we are setting the seeds for the future. Not necessarily in a mystical way, but just by saying everything we do, we might say, reinforces either good habits or bad habits. And to be aware of that, is a way of, can, that, can, that can give energy for practice, to remember that. Uh, the fourth is to reflect, basically, um, if I would say it in contemporary lang- language, how suffering really is lousy. How su- you know, and how, how suffering is something to be contemplated, and to the extent that it comes out of our confusion and ignorance, we should find ways to address it and really to reflect on suffering and to see the connection with our own ignorance or bad habits or so forth can sometimes give us energy for, for practicing. And so finding, what do I need to look at my priorities differently? Do I need to structure my life differently? Again, when I talk with people, it's very ordinary uh, concerns that people have. For some people, it's not staying up too late on the internet really helps the shift of priorities. You know, where it's giving more time because it translates into they stay up too late, they wake up late, they have to rush to work, they don't have time for practice. And so for a lot of people, you know, where it could be really taking care of oneself, um, eating well, uh, treating oneself with kindness in terms of diet or something, or diet, sleep, and all these things are ways of establishing priorities and really, really important. 
find being with friends that support your priorities. You know, that's one of the challenging aspects of our practice. As we develop, sometimes we find certain old friends uh, are part of our past, basically. You know, and we may want to prioritize being with some people rather than others. So all this falls under intention, you know, both in the sense, I think of intention as having two broad areas. One is aspiration, priorities, what we really want. And the second is really having specific intentions for this activity, for that activity, for how I want to be. And bringing those intentions, finding some ways to have intentions stronger in one's life is, uh, is really important. Another area that I think is really uh, crucial is finding ways to bring our practice into interaction and speech. And this is why for me, uh, developing uh, practice in speech and communication is one of the crucial practices for, for us, basically. To have a sense of, okay, I'm in an interaction now. This can be uh, continuous with my practice. How do I do that? You know, and this is something that I've been particularly interested in and have offered uh, co-taught seven-day retreats on speech. But I'll just say a little bit about this and something I'll go into more depth on in the day long later this month uh, on speech. But it really is crucial because for myself it's been really uh, powerful to have speech and interaction become continuous with time on the cushion. Right? So, it's, so it's actually one can actually have a sense, I'm speaking to another person, I have just as much a formal sense of practice as I do on the cushion. That's possible. That's possible to develop. Body awareness plays a large role. So it's not to be totally caught up in the thoughts and the minds, like when you're talking with someone or on the phone. And that's, so that's challenging, but it's to, can one be there in talking and really be aware of all the parts of one's experience, to be there with awareness so that there is thinking and talking maybe going on, but there's also awareness of the body. There's also awareness of the emotion. There can be the ability to track, oh, I feel, I'm feeling triggered or reactive after that person said that, and to know that that's happening. So generally, uh, the speech practice, uh, I think of it as having two main areas, and, and we've looked at this in our, in our time together. Uh, one of the areas is to work with the ethical precepts. I didn't mention that earlier, but following ethical precepts, another basic way to deepen daily life practice, to really make a commitment to non-harming. So I hope this isn't too dizzying. We, I think this is, I probably mentioned about the 43rd different tool or technique for, for daily life practice. We'll have to have a compilation. So, but I hope I'm, I hope, I hope this is, uh, can be energizing because there are a lot of ways. And as I mentioned last time, uh, it is not wise to try to do all 43 of these <laughs> at the same time. And so one, one, the way one actually can learn is to actually take one or two and do them for a week or a month. And then they become your own. And then do another one or two. So, and this is what we emphasized last time. The invitation was, okay, work with, um, work, for some of us it might be, I'm just going to really have my daily practice be solid for the next month. And that's it. Forget the other 42. You know, just do that. And that's a lot. For others it could be, 
I'm going to uh, work with intentions uh, during my work. Could be that. For others, it might be, I'm going to try to be aware of my hands during the day. <laughs> That's it, nothing else. You know, just do that. Work, work some with awareness of the body. Or for others, it could be, I'm going to focus on the ethical precepts. I'm going to focus really on having non-harming be strong. I'm going to remember the ethical precepts every morning. So one at a time, you know, over a year, again, I'm, I'm think, you know, I know it's a good idea. I have to get my schedule together, but I know it'd be great to have like a, I don't know, a year-long curriculum on strengthening daily life practice that you could do modules in. You would come in for a month or two months or three months. We have a whole curriculum where we're focusing on certain areas so you can really do each of these. How many of you would sign up for that? Okay. okay. No, no commitment necessary with the hand. Okay. But yeah, I think I, I would sign up. Um. <laughs> so, so that's important to remember. We're, name, we're naming a lot of things, and the recording of this will be available. And I think, I, I think I'd like to do that little compilation, maybe another time, bring in my list of 60 and just make copies for everyone. Yes. Right? And, and make that available. And then you know, we could gather them together and we'd have 100, which is a good number. Okay, so speech practice, the ethical guidelines for speech are really important. This would be to, th this was the main teaching of the Buddha. It was to say when one's speaking, to remember to have the guidelines of being truthful, being helpful, coming out of a good heart, and having good timing. And those of you who've been at some of our sessions where we focused on speech, that's an initial training. And I mentioned how I had those four guidelines. I still have them by my telephone. And when I've done periods of training, I've sometimes looked at those and repeated them uh, before answering a phone call. You know, mm -hmm. Truthful, helpful, good heart, good timing, hello. <laughs> You know? And um, that can be a way of working with speech that's very effective. And one could just do that. For, and, and again, there's, there's, there's explication of what these guidelines mean. You know? And I, I did a lot of that in, some of my, in, in the book that I mentioned earlier. But there are a lot of places to, to look at that. And a second, a second way of developing speech practice and really interaction process that's a little harder a little more advanced, is to develop mindfulness in the midst of speech. It's to be able to develop awareness as we're talking. And sometimes when we've done that here, it would be, can you develop awareness of your body right now and listen at the same time? It's, it's, it's developing a way, some of our conditioning is even for listening to a talk, is just to be in a purely mental realm, right? Just to be with the words. Can one bring in other parts of one's experience right now? So that you're listening, you have awareness of your body, maybe you're tracking your thoughts as they're occurring, maybe noticing if they're emotions, and also listen. This is a training, it takes time and energy. It's possible, and, and it, it's helped by training in times when you don't have any performance demands. Like right now, I have a performance demand, but you don't. Unless I suddenly ask, okay, what do you think? <laughs> but I'm not going to do that. And, and so, uh, so if you're at a meeting, for example, and you don't have anything, no leadership, nothing to do, you can experiment with having awareness at the same time that you're tracking what's going on in terms of the meeting. 
you can do that, or you can decide, yeah, or you can, and over time it becomes possible to have awareness and be acting. I try to do that when I give talks, try to have body awareness and have my thoughts not just be focused on the thoughts, but be focused also, have awareness of my body, my presence, and of you all and the space. But my experience is that takes training to get there. But when that, when that develops in that way, then we have access in the middle of speech and interaction to knowing, am I, was I just triggered? Sometimes we can ask, what should I do right now? In other words, we go away from being more automatic in our interactions with others, which is really crucial. It really is to bring in, bring in the wisdom. So I'll, I'll, I could say a lot more about that. We have, there are on Dharma Seed longer talks on the speech practice, and we'll do a lot more detail at that day long on February, on February 25th. I think I will just uh, end, because I wanted to give uh, more time today for, for discussion. I wanted to end with um, a reading from an old text. This probably is maybe close to 2,000 years old. This is, um, there, were, there was a movement in the Buddhist tradition where probably starting in the, around the time of Jesus, around that time, there was a movement that's called the Mahayana. And it was, um, the emphasis was much more on the possibility of awakening in the middle of everyday life for lay people, for people who are not monks or nuns. There was also much more of a role for women. Some people interpret the tradition as the rising up of some of the indigenous Indian traditions which had been somewhat suppressed by the invaders. I think some, most of you probably know the history, or some of you know the history of India, which was that the people who became the Hindus were primarily invaders from the West. So, you know, there are different views, but I think most scholars would agree with that, who came somewhere 2500 before the Common Era and were sometimes called Aryans. That's what they called themselves. Uh, and, and, they, and there, was an, there were indigenous people. Some people think that actually the practice of meditation came out of indigenous roots and not from the invaders, that it was actually taking the gifts of the local people. And they were more dark-skinned, and the invaders were more light-skinned. And, but there was, so at a certain time, there was a movement towards more lay people. Also, again, having more to do, maybe more with connection with the earth, more with women, uh, more with uh, the importance of everyday life practice. And that was, that was part of the energy called the Mahayana, which became the main form for the Buddhism of... Um, uh, first India, but the now China, Japan, Tibet, and so forth. Okay. And there was a text which was written um, around this time. I'm not, I forget the exact date, but it was, it was pretty soon. It was in the first few hundred years of the Common Era uh, called The Holy Teaching of Vimalakirti. And it was kind of archetypal for the potentials of lay life. And there's this figure called Vimalakirti who was a lay person. And uh, it's a little bit in hyperbole and exaggeration, but I thought I'd read 
part of the account of Vimalakirti because it can be inspiring for the potentials of having awakening in the midst of all the activities of daily life. Okay? So this is Vimalakirti who was this, I think this is, a, this is like an archetype. Whether there was a real person like this, I'm not positive. Okay, so here's, I'll close with this, then we can have some discussion. Vimalakirti was honored and commended by all the Buddhas, and he was respected by all the Hindu gods. In order to develop living beings with his skill in liberative technique, he lived in the great city of Vasily. His wealth was inexhaustible for the purpose of sustaining the poor and the helpless. He observed a pure morality in order to protect the immoral. He maintained tolerance and self-control in order to reconcile beings who were angry, cruel, violent, and brutal. He blazed with energy in order to inspire people who were lazy. He maintained concentration, mindfulness, and meditation in order to sustain the mentally troubled. He attained uh, decisive wisdom in order to sustain the foolish. He wore the white clothes of the layperson, yet he lived impeccably like a religious devotee. He lived at home but remained aloof from the realm of compulsive desire, the realm of pure matter and the immaterial realm. He had a son, a wife, and female attendants that always maintained con continence. <laughs> I'm just reading the translation. <laughs> he appeared to be surrounded by servants, yet lived in solitude. He appeared to be adorned with ornaments, yet always was endowed with the auspicious signs and marks. He appeared to eat and drink, yet always took nourishment from the taste of meditation. He made his appearance in the field of sports and in the casinos, but his aim was always to um, mature those people who were attached to games and gambling. <laughs> he, vis he, he visited the fashionable teachers, yet always kept unswerving loyalty to the Buddha. He understood the mundane and transcendental sciences and esoteric practices, yet always took pleasure in the delights of the Dharma. He mixed in all crowds, yet was respected as foremost of all. In order to be in harmony with people, he associated with elders, with those of middle age and with the young. He engaged in all sorts of business, yet had no interest in profit or possessions. To train living beings, he would appear at crossroads and on street corners, and to protect them, he participated in government. <laughs> <laughs> He appeared among listeners of the Dharma. To develop children, he visited all the schools. To demonstrate the evils of compulsive desire, he even entered brothels. <laughs> to, establish the, to establish drunkards in correct mindfulness, he entered all the cabarets. Wow. Busy guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, I, I read that. I hope that was helpful. It was, <laughs> with more, more of a sense of no boundaries, right? A sense of someone who uh, went into all places, did all sorts of work, did not have a lot of fixed ideas. And maybe in, in, in that period it was a man, we could have it as a woman, we could have it as all sorts of beings. But the idea, I think, was that there was a sense that this, sense, this possibility of awakening could happen anywhere in any situation, and that we need to be skillful in all of them. So 
with that, uh, I will stop and invite a few moments of quiet, and then we, we can talk to each other. Thank you for your attention. I hope you enjoyed getting to, to know Vimala Kirti a little bit. And we have some time just to talk about anything related to our daily life practice or anything that's come up in hearing the talk or in your meditation. <clears throat> and I'll, re I'll repeat the questions or comments. Please, uh, Mark. Yeah. Still kind of a realist. And yeah. One of the things that when you talk about difficult situations, yeah. a person comes to mind, and I'm sure everybody can relate to at least one person. Yeah. But there was an extremely toxic person at work in my workplace. Yeah. And I and I would always think after going on retreat, etc., I'd think I want to do loving kindness, etc. Yeah. But at some point, I'm just going to say this because I'm I'm not some pure person here, but I just realized this person is not going to change. This person is extremely damaged and was in a position of power and was a very tall, loud male. And I did retire, actually, from my work. Yeah. And what I do know is that person is still there, yeah. creating ripples of ugliness. Yeah. And I'm thinking about a talk years ago that Ram Das had, and someone yeah. was asking me, how do I do this loving kindness yeah. in the midst of, of awful yeah. that might even actually threaten my life? And he just said, look, sometimes it's like a split. Yeah. And I'm thinking again about people that are maybe, I've only been married once, I'm still married, but people that have been awful marriages, and then they've, they've actually yeah. been divorced. And I think, so there, sometimes I think there are times where you say, this is difficult, but this is way too much. I yeah. think it's okay, if I can yeah. be away, I think, I think that, I'm, I'm probably saying, stating what many people probably said. But that's yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good, so Mark's uh, comment really, and really um, eliciting discussion, is uh, reflecting that is really we really I could frame it as does this suggestion to take difficulties as practice does this mean that one stays with all difficulties or takes all difficulties and just stays with them no matter what and I think and the, his point was uh, or his um, reflection on his own experience was of a person at work who was in a position of power and was described as toxic or probably could fill that out with a further description, but, and that it didn't seem to be uh, open or amenable to change and uh, was, and still is apparently, causing harm. And, and are there times when, when a difficulty arises, it's best just to uh, uh, not say, oh, this is a difficulty, I should practice, but sometimes should leave the situation or, or end the relationship. Uh, and I, I, uh, clearly there are. Clearly, uh, uh, and I like to think about it in terms of when we, you know, when we teach metta, we do teach 
that it's good to attend to the degree of difficulty and to know what's practical. Um, some situations one can't get out of, you know, in, in a sense. You know, one can uh, uh, certainly within family or sometimes at work there, there may always be a situation. But then one can have some, there are definitely situations where it's important to take a choice. And it would be a very responsible decision, I think, quite often to say, uh, this is not the kind of difficulty that I want to work with, and I have the choice and power to uh, to leave it. Yeah. So it could be it could be a relationship. I think that's one of the hardest things in relationships is to know when to le- leave. I know when I was in a very challenging relationship, I looked in all the literature on relationships, and I didn't find much on that topic. You know, on how to, what to do, how to know whether oh, this is just a difficulty which is going to build me. I want to learn from, or whether it's really important to, to, to end it. It's, it's, some, it's sometimes quite challenging to know that. And same thing in probably in a work situation, even when there's a difficult person, it's still livelihood, there are other benefits, of course. So hard often to decide that, but I think definitely there are times when it's wise to say, uh, this difficulty is not something I want in my life. So, so thank you in that. And hard to know when, that's, that's, that's challenging. Please. I understand that situation, and I had something similar with a with a different outcome. But there's a yeah. difference in that it wasn't a work situation where I had to be every day. Yeah. <clears throat> it was during a, a class that I was taking here at Spirit Rock, and we spent a week working on compassion. Yeah. And I happened to be the victim of a road rage incident yeah. right at the beginning of that week, and <clears throat> I chose to use that person as the object of my compassion practice twice a day. And it was a very traumatic in- incident. Yeah. And as I was trying to practice compassion towards this person, my initial responses were fear and trauma and horror and lots yeah. of negative stuff. But after I had worked through it for several days continuously, my attitude towards that person began to change. And yeah. I began to see that person less as a source of harm and fear but my feelings changed towards one of recognition of how damaged that person must yeah. be to behave that way. And so what what changed was not the person, because that wasn't going to change. What changed was my feelings and yeah. my attitude towards that person. But it took some perseverance. Yeah. Remind me of your name? Nancy. Nancy. So, Nancy, I'll, I'll say this for uh, those who didn't hear everything, that um, Nancy was reporting... Uh, doing compassion practice with a person who had, who was apparently very rageful in an, in a, on the road in a, in a way that felt traumatic and very, very difficult. And that in the course of doing this practice, when at first fear came up and other, other very difficult experiences came up, over time, staying with the practice, it shifted. And it led to probably more compassion, and you reported also having the wisdom, you know, which is also what, what Mark was reporting of coming to see how the, maybe the unskillful behavior came out of that person's suffering and confusion, which is, which is a basis for compassion. Um, please, yeah. So here's another way to look at it that I'd love to have you respond to. Yeah. Um, remembering 
Sharon Salzberg's story about when somebody tried accosted her when she was in a rickshaw and when she told her yeah. teacher about it, the teacher said, um, I would have very lovingly hit him over the head with my umbrella. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah. and also Jesus turning over the money changers yeah. as a way of bringing, raising consciousness generally. I'm just wondering about the role of assertive action in the case of the man who was talking about his work <coughs> situation, um, what if he had organized to get rid of this guy or to do, you know, some in some way stop him from harming, yeah. to continuing to harm? Or if she had called the police and, and um, reported the guy who cussed her out or whatever he did. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, run, again, run me your Helen. So again, a great question about the, in all of this practice with difficulties, and we're going immediately to the highest degree of difficulties, <laughs> which, which, why not? <laughs> so, so, but remembering that we practice and develop the resources for working with the really difficult things by working with less difficult things and just the ordinary experiences. We have to remember that. That's really important. So. The, the question of is, what's the place in working with difficult people or difficult situations of uh, what Helen's calling assertive action, or we could say active responses that might uh, not just work internally, but also work externally. So it's, it's one way to say it. Uh, you know, um, and cited Jesus and the money changers, and what was the other? Sharon oh, Sharon Salzberg's example of uh, her teacher Munindra counseling her in a situation when she was, I don't know if she was mugged or threatened to be mugged walking on the streets of India. Uh, you should very lovingly take your umbrella and swat that person. Um, yeah, I, I don't know about the, uh, yeah, I think in, I mean, the, the question of swatting and hitting and so forth, that gets into more complicated issues, but definitely uh, responsiveness really, really crucial. And so ideally we want, this, this is where speech could come in, we want to be, we want to be skillful ultimately both with our, in, working with our internal reactions and developing strong internal response and then be skillful in our actions as well, in all sorts of actions ranging from speech to intervention in, very, in a particular workplace or on the, in the larger society. So very, very uh, crucial. And again, it could be, we could have a whole focus in terms of daily life practice on the importance of, do, of doing that. You know, I was pointing to speech practice as kind of a foundational practice uh, that gives that, that really could be used in all these other areas. You know, if we're skillful with our speech, that's important for intervening at work, doing social action and so forth. But there's, we could have a whole another discussion on how do we combine inner work with outer responsiveness. I think, again, one of the horizons of our, of our lives, really. And I did do a whole book on that topic also. Uh, that's called The Engaged Spiritual Life, which really looks at ways to connect inner work, particularly with social service and social action. So it's a big topic. But it's really, it's great to bring it up because ultimately, I think, what we're aspiring towards is to have this combination of being able to be really skillful externally. I could paraphrase it and or make up something like the Vimalakirti Sutta that we read, you know, and we, they were, they could do, you know, the, you know, uh, I don't know, 
Susan was developed in all the meditative tools, had done 30 years of psychotherapy, you know, had inconceivable psychological techniques, had 38 techniques for transforming difficult energies internally, and also was a master of speech and could enter workplaces and talk to toxic bosses <laughs> with tremendous skill that would leave the person realizing that his own behavior was a result of unworked out early childhood difficulties <laughs> and would come immediately to Spirit Rock for further training. <laughs> You know, and so we could imagine some text like that for the contemporary period. And but uh, on a you know that's a little bit hyperbole. But we could all you know for us, it's one of the horizons. Is can I really be skillful with my inner work, and then I, can I bring that out into my outer relations? It's a simple way to say it. And that's again one that we could give a lot of emphasis there. And there are all these um, tools that really I think are foundational for that. Speech is a really important one, but there are a lot of other ones. Yeah, other, other comments or questions? Maybe we should collectively do a contemporary update of the great being who has developed all the abilities to manifest in our society. You know, you know, could, could have, in addition to 30 years of psychotherapy, could, could text 1,300 messages a day to, to Beings in need. <laughs> other other thoughts, reflect, please. Yeah, Tracy. I wanted to uh, express my gratitude here. I mean, at this point, in the training or teaching um, for for this dialogue, um, and I find it really timely. I um, I have a very close friend who just lost her husband. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm very anxious when I talk to her and I find myself so this this teaching has been really something I'm gonna take to heart. Yeah. And, and and to use this difficulty as to further my practice. Yeah. Yeah, so comment uh, was about um, just finding it important to uh, receiving support I guess for taking a challenging situation involving a relation to another person where there's been profound loss and, and the challenges individually for that, but take energy for taking that more as practice, which is really, really, really the aim. Yeah. The uh, last, last yeah, one, maybe. Just, I was just going to add to, um, in that sort of situation and lots of others, I'm sure, uh, the practice, the most important practice would be listening. Yeah. Yeah. That list, listen to the comment was that in that sort of instance and in um, many, many instances, listening is a very profound practice. And it's really, um, it's really a metaphor. Uh, it's really a metaphor for, I think, all of our practice to that, that kind of deep listening, listening to ourselves. A lot of, a lot of what we were t I was talking about with speech and even being with the body, these are ways that we can listen to our own minds because when we're on automatic, it's hard to really listen to ourselves and know what we're saying. Or we can be with ourselves and listen and say, oh, that didn't feel good, what just happened with that interaction. And sometimes if things are happening so quickly, we don't know that until later at night or something. We say, oh, 
what was that about? And so forth. And so how do we have this profound listening, which can also be, as uh, Helen was suggesting, linked with responsiveness? You know, and it's really the, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a be- I think that could be a beautiful way to talk about our practice, that we, we become tremendous listeners who can also be responders. You know, we, we develop deeply in listening to ourselves, listening to others. And of course, to do that, listening sounds simple, but to really listen carefully, if our mind is going 100 miles an hour, we can't listen to ourselves and we can't listen to others. And so the act of listening to another person, you know, in, in the example that was given that uh, Tracy gave, would be to listen with your heart open and your mind open. And that, and we train really, the meditative training is to make that possible. Because most people who are untrained cannot listen carefully. And that's the norm, more the norm in our society. Of course, to some extent, but not, not so well often. So listening internally, listening externally, and then, and it's in a way, I think, maybe I'll, I'll just close with this, that my experience is as we listen really, really deeply, we activate, and I'm sure we all know this experience, we activate other parts of ourselves, our intuition, our compassion. And when we listen really, really deeply, I think we increasingly act and respond out of that, um, out of those deeper intuitions, that deeper compassion. And of course, uh, it's important to say that I'm describing us at our best moments. And we always, you know, we, we shouldn't, uh, we want to really think of this, I believe, as a long-term training. And there are ups and downs, and there are best moments, and then we could have three hours later, we could just be a little bit more automatic, and we could feel ambushed by something. And say, oh my God, I was not aware at all at that moment. And that's how it is, isn't it? The practice. It's like sometimes we're aware, we're at our best, and sometimes we're not. And uh, when we were with the community, we know that that's the case, and we can not blame ourselves for not always being at our best, because it's like that. And it's a training, it's a long learning process, and I, th- I have personally more energy for uh, developing a curriculum that could um, you know, lay this out and support and be available. So I'm going to work on that. <laughs> so, so let's sit for a moment, and I'll invite us to be with whatever may have been most helpful from the morning, maybe quite related to our theme, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe something came up for you that's about some up, something else that just got sparked. So what, be with whatever was most helpful or most important about the morning, and then also be in touch with uh, intentions for this next period of time. And again, I'll invite everyone, take one or maybe two of these daily life practices and make it your own for the next week. So let's just have both of those aspects present for a little while, both what was helpful and then any intentions.
we close by remembering that we practice both for ourselves and for others, ultimately for the benefit of all, all beings. So thank you for your... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.